This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. If you aren't actively seeking out childcare or working in an industry, chances are you are still aware of the childcare crisis in the country and in Connecticut. Advocates and experts have been sounding the alarm about funding and staffing shortfalls even before the pandemic began, making federal relief dollars over the last two plus years all the more critical. Well, those dollars are scheduled to dry up come September 30th. This week, Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal pressed for three bills that could help stabilize funding, even if for another interim. This includes the Child Care Stabilization Act, which would mean $16 million nationally. Child care was in crisis even before the pandemic, but the pandemic has brought it to the brink of collapse. We need to make sure that a child care system literally on the brink of collapse, on a fiscal cliff, is saved for those thousands of children in Connecticut and childcare workers who may be deprived of facilities that right now are ongoing and that will lose money at the end of this month. That's $16 billion under the proposed Child Care Stabilization Act. And with this short-term hurdle or cliff ahead, What's next for early childhood educators in Connecticut? And what are the longer-term solutions? Here to discuss is Connecticut Office of Early Childhood Commissioner Beth Bai. Thank you so much, Commissioner Bai, for being on the show this morning. Thanks for having me, Catherine. And for our listeners, let us know if you have recent experiences with finding child care or are you an early childhood educator? Let us know, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Commissioner Bai, I want to ask, how steep is this cliff? And how many programs do you estimate will be affected at the end of the month? We have some stats here that show us, uh, based on the Century Foundation, they estimated about 3.2 million children will be directly affected nationally. Yeah, it's a really good question. Well, well, in Connecticut, um, we have about $240 million, almost $241 million, that we have had to use in, in ways to stabilize childcare in Connecticut. And in Connecticut, the last of those payments are going out last week and this week. The governor and legislature approved that $23 million um, in the federal dollars would go directly to programs in high-need communities um, starting um available in July that that went through a process that's going out now. So in Connecticut, there is some stabilization going out as we speak, but that is the end. It has to be out by September 30th. And then all that f- extra funding, the $241 million ends, and all that's left is discretionary, much of which, which has been obligated uh, through September of 2024. And so we know, of course, this is not a new problem. So what sorts of strategies or preparations are in place at the OEC to help fill in the funding gaps? Yeah, it's a really good question. Well, the governor and the legislature worked together last year to add about $70 million of state funds um, to help fill in. So we will continue to fund Care for Kids, which is a program that makes childcare more affordable for families. Um, at a much higher rate uh, than we had. We were serving about 15,000 children before the pandemic. Using the federal aid, we got up to about 22,000, and the legislature and governor will be able to keep that between 19 and 20,000. So about 5,000 more children will continue uh, to be served by Care for Kids so their parents can work. Um, So 
that's one way we filled in. We also um, increased with state funds, the rates at state funded programs, which serve infant toddlers and preschoolers about 16,000, um, because those programs were really struggling fiscally. Um, it's still not paying the full cost of care, uh, but it's an improvement. So uh, the legislature and governor did do some things in Connecticut to try to reduce the cliff effect, if you will. Well, and then talking about the legislature, you know, how would the bills uh, that Senator Blumenthal discussed help, in particular the $16 billion emergency relief promised in the Child Care Stabilization Act? Yeah, the, this this scale of this issue is so big, it really requires a federal response. Senator Blumenthal is correct. Um, just this week, the bill introduced in the Senate, I believe that he was speaking of, that alone would bring $160 million to Connecticut to help with this challenge that we're facing. Um, and $160 million would really allow us to serve more families um, with child care support and also to provide more stabilization to keep programs open. So it would be a significant investment. And it, as he said, it's really needed. It's not a question of oh, this would be nice. Um, we've been able to maintain supply in Connecticut only because of the federal relief dollars. Well, and then talking about how this is not a new problem, we have Meryl Gay, who is the executive director at Connecticut Early Childhood Alliance, who called this a predictable calamity and also pointed to the long-term crisis on top of this short-term calamity. So how are you thinking about that in a long-term basis? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked. Well, uh, Governor Lamont sees this as a significant long-term problem. Um, we know that Connecticut is short 100,000 workers, and uh, CBIA has said that if we could get the supply of childcare up so families that needed childcare could access it, it would more than take care of that 100,000 worker gap. So this isn't just a matter of young children's brains, which I think first and foremost it is. You want high-quality care to support young children and their families. But it's really a matter of Connecticut's economy and getting the workforce that we need um, because childcare costs are so high that for many families, one parent either reduces their hours or stays home, and that impacts the available workforce in Connecticut. So the governor appointed a blue ribbon panel made up of business leaders, uh, higher ed childcare providers, actually. Uh, Karen Lott and Monette Ferguson, who are joining you today, are, are on that panel to come up with a five-year strategic plan to address this big challenge that is child care and long-term challenge. It's really the first time we've dug this deep, had this broader um, process uh, to bring people in. And we've heard from more than 2,000 folks out there, parents, advocates, providers, giving us advice about what we should have in that plan. Well, I think you've been reading my mind, Commissioner Bai, that I, I was just going to mention that later on we will be hearing from early childhood educators in New Haven, Hartford, and Bridgeport. So we know Hartford recently had a surplus of child care seats while New Haven is actually short. Can you talk about this difference? Um, yeah, there are differences by community. Um, virtually every town in the state has a shortage of infant toddler spaces. Um, some communities have a surplus of spaces for three and four-year-olds. Um, but, you know, there there are slight differences, but both Hartford and New Haven are what we would consider child care deserts where they don't have enough child care uh, to serve the family needs in the community. And even beyond just affordability, it's just having enough spaces uh, for the number of young children. So um, we have a whole we have a way that we look at each community and, and there are slight differences, 
Um, but we know every community is short infant toddler care, which is, you know, the big problem, I think, the biggest problem in Connecticut right now. And so we also know that many relief programs and initiatives are sort of doled out with equity in mind based on community mm-hmm. needs. And But mm-hmm. how do the spectrum of business models model uh, factor into equity considerations? For example, are for-profit businesses finances and circumstances a factor weighed against uh, nonprofits who might be struggling in different ways? Yeah, what we have done both with the uh, grants that we've sent out to programs and even with assigning new infant toddler spaces is we're we're looking at something called uh, the Social Vulnerability Index. That is, um, we are sending additional funds to towns that have more resource challenges, where families have more resource challenges, because we found um, during the pandemic that those were the places that had the hardest time attracting and keeping a workforce, which is the sort of core issue in early childhood right now. Um, And we also, as we assign spaces, looked at childcare deserts. So where there were deserts is where we look to build more capacity. High need and desert were sort of our two, um, the two ways we scored the applications to uh, assign new spaces. So we really have been intentional both about equity. And uh, it's not like we sent the same to everyone. We really looked at the circumstance of the program. And so most of the for-profit centers are not located in high need areas. So um, while certainly they got some of the grants, um, they got less from each grant. And then this last round was really targeted at higher social vulnerability index communities. And so we know that family childcare homes are one for-profit model that's also vulnerable. Uh, however much those businesses were resilient in those early stages of the pandemic, which helped keep the sector afloat in some ways. Uh, let's listen to Jessica Sager with All Our Kin out of New Haven. Each of these small businesses is really holding a whole neighborhood together. And every program that we lose will cost so much more to rebuild. Family childcare educators operate on incredibly thin margins. And sometimes what happens is that if a family cannot pay, uh, you know, or isn't eligible for subsidy, educators will just take the hit and take families on a pay what you can basis, incurring enormous financial hardships for themselves. In addition, because they're self-employed small business owners, it's very hard for them to get access to things like healthcare and retirement benefits and all the things that we know are important for health and longevity and stability. So with the points that Jessica is raising, we'd love to know what your thoughts are about family care homes, Commissioner. Yeah, in Connecticut, we've really leaned into family child care as part of our child care solution. We believe in this public-private system that we have in Connecticut. Um, Unlike other states, and I think because of organizations like All Our Kin and other staff family child care networks, we have been able to hold on to family child care supply. So in 2022, we had 1,800 family child care homes. And in 2023, we still have 1,800 uh, family child care homes. There, I think there are seven less or something like that. So um, these supports that both the grants and then business supports um, and, and other things uh, to try to help programs make it, I think, have helped. And the Blue Ribbon Panel really heard that the the grants that came from the American Rescue Plan really helped them stay afloat. So the Blue Ribbon Panel's thinking about how do we make sure um, we can 
support family child care in the next phase now that the American Rescue Plan dollars are gone because um, they're a critical part. As, as Jessica said, um, often they're in neighborhoods, so people that may have transportation challenges can just walk down the street to a neighbor who has a family child care home. Um, and we're also working to support the national accreditation of family uh, child care providers and Early Head Start is also doing lots of support. So I think more and more our our country and state is realizing that family child care providers are critical parts of the early education system. And so Jessica Sager with All Our Kin in New Haven also spoke to the importance of addressing how families are experiencing this crisis. And I want to build a quick scene here, big picture in Connecticut, more numbers coming up. Uh, the OEC's uh, 2022 parent survey found 17 percent of families with young children spent more than 30 percent of their income on child care. And nearly a third, which is about 31 percent of families earning under $25,000 reported paying for child care entirely from their own income. Let's take another quick listen to Jessica. Sometimes we create a false tension between affordability for parents and fair compensation for educators. We need to think of those as part of the same thing. That means we have to start by thinking about the state's subsidy payment that helps parents pay for care. We have to expand eligibility. It is incredibly diff difficult to be a parent in the United States. And this was true even before the pandemic. You have to make such tough choices about paying for childcare, about going to work, about where you leave your children every day. The ability of a parent to have access to a childcare program of their choice, where they know their children is loved and safe and cared for and learning, any parent will tell you that that is the most precious gift that you can give them. And we really have a collective responsibility as a state to make sure that every parent feels that way. Commissioner, what are your thoughts about what Jessica has to say? Yeah, I, th I think Jessica is, you know, Jessica is correct. Families are spending too much of their income on childcare and childcare providers not being compensated at a wage uh, that they can live on. Um, so, so we have to sort of break that tension, as she's saying. Um, and uh, the Blue Ribbon Panel does propose doing what she suggests, expanding eligibility for care for kids. And also under Governor Lamont for the next three years, we'll be increasing the rates 11% per year uh, for three years uh, to try to get closer to paying the cost of quality. And the state will move from paying about 50% of the market rate with its subsidy payments up to 75% of the market rate with the subsidy payments. Uh, but you can hear when I say that, you know, it's the market rate and the market is suppressed and paying 75% of what it costs does not help providers get what they need um, to earn a living wage. So there are a lot of challenges in the system, but Governor Lamont will have moved it from 30% of the market rate up to 75% of the market rate in five years. So he understands the challenges and uh, we've added tens of millions of dollars to the budget so that we can serve more families and also increase the rates for providers. And following what Jessica and the commissioner just said, speaking of parents, Sophie on Facebook writes, I had two children in daycare a couple years ago while my husband and I were both in graduate school. We tried to apply for care for kids, but it was an extremely difficult process. I missed mm -hmm. one phone call to solidify my application. It was during work hours, but I called right back and couldn't get a hold of anyone. My application was denied because I missed that phone call. 
Well, thank you so much, Sophie, for sharing your story. And sorry to hear that that's what happened to you. I'm sure that resonates with a lot of parents out there listening to this conversation. Also want to share, too, uh, Jessica Sager at All Our Kin is also a member of the new governor's panel you chair, commissioner that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. the Connecticut yeah. Blue Ribbon Panel on Child Care. So we'll hear from three more members after a quick great break. But right now, I um, want to ask, you know, panel meetings have began in May. There's already a draft of the five-year plan due out in December. So, Commissioner, what are your hopes for the panel, and what are some of the top items in this draft plan? Yeah, uh, well, th- we just spoke about one of them, uh, uh, you know, which is expanding care for kids so that more families have access. Uh, we also have several items aimed at compensation, I think, what we've heard in the listening sessions is that if we don't take care of compensation, nothing else matters. You can't get to quality. There are hundreds of classrooms across the state closed because programs can't um, find teachers. So uh, we've heard loud and clear that compensation is first. But there are some low cost, no cost things we can do. You hit on one from the parent, which is um, improving our processes so families can access um the care for kids easier. And and under Governor Lamont, now families who are in higher ed can access care for kids. Three years ago, that was not allowable in Connecticut. It never had been. So um, we can also um, do things like simplify our state funding and federal funding. So there can be one classroom in Connecticut that has five, five different funding streams and rules and requirements. And that's very hard for programs to manage. So there's some things we can do to simplify the system for families, to improve our outreach, to improve our enrollment um, uh, that don't cost as much money. And then there's some of the higher cost items, which is improving the rates for teacher pay and expanding access so more families can can get um, child care support. You've been listening to Connecticut Office of Early Childhood Commissioner Beth Bai. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Good to be on. Of course, always. And for our listeners, we want to hear about your experience with early education and childcare in Connecticut. Let us know if you have any questions. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first, most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. 
We're digging into the long-standing child care crisis in Connecticut, which advocates say was a conundrum even before the pandemic began. Do you have questions or concerns about early education and child care in Connecticut? Give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And joining us now to discuss are three members of the governor's recently formed Blue Ribbon Panel on Child Care. We have Dr. Monette Ferguson, who is the executive director of the Alliance for Community Empowerment in Bridgeport. Dr. Ferguson, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We also have with us Karen Lott, who's the executive director at the Women's League Child Development Center in Hartford. Thank you so much, Karen, for being with us. Thank you for having me. And we also have Alex Chavoni, who is the executive director of the Friends Center for Children in New Haven. Welcome back, Alex. Hi, thanks. Nice to be here. I'm actually um, on the advisory panel, uh, the stakeholder advisory panel that for the Blue Ribbon panel, not on the panel itself. Gotcha. Great. We will add that for sure. Thanks for letting us Thank know. You. I want to start with Dr. Ferguson, you know, thinking big picture about this crisis and its solutions. There is a sense that it really is all sort of wrapped up in staffing and also the need for higher or more competitive wages. Is that really at the crux of this conversation? Absolutely. Uh, it's also top of mind for the Blue Ribbon panel. Uh, we know we can't possibly move the needle on this on this crisis without compensating our hard skilled workers in this industry. And can you share how this is affecting the educational programs that you offer at the Alliance for Community Empowerment in Bridgeport? You know, where do the wait lists stand? Yeah, uh, we have dozens of families on the wait list and we could double that number on the infant toddler wait list. Um, and the issue is staffing. Um, I would love to wrap our arms and, and services around every family on that wait list, but uh, I just I just don't have the staff. And how does that number compare to pre-pandemic wait lists? Yeah, so pre-pandemic, the wait list was really based on, you know, whether whether families could get access to subsidies. We already talked about that. Um, whether families, it, it was a different type of wait list pre-pandemic. Um, we were 100% uh, staffed pre-pandemic, um, but the pandemic did something detrimental to an already, you know, fragile, I would say, as one of my peers, uh, my advocate peers, Meryl Gray would say, um, industry. So here we are, folks are, you know, we're, I, I hesitate using the word post-pandemic, but we're at a different phase and the pandemic, and and it's all about staffing. So that wait list is not moving as quickly as I'd like it to. Now, Blue Ribbon has uh, honed in on, like I said, wages, but we're also talking about systemic issues, system issues around credentials and and how we view these important educators um, and how we could use their skills and knowledge um, to not just pay them what they deserve, but also restaff this industry. Karen, with what Dr. Ferguson just shared, you know, how does this compare to your experience in Hartford? Are you hearing similar things, different things? You know, what are your thoughts? So the day-to-day -day experience, lived experience, is very much as Dr. Ferguson has uh, stated. We, prior to the pandemic, always had a wait list. Um, now our wait list is, we really see the wait list for our infant and toddler slots. And even though we've increased our capacity to serve more infants and toddlers, there are still lots of families in the community 
who are working and looking for infant and toddler care. Um, I think what is important for pe when people hear this conversation about the staffing shortage is to know that we're an industry that is governed by ratios. So by our licensing uh, division, we can only have a certain number of children per teacher. So that is what complicates our ability to bring more children into program. We want the children in the program. We know they need to be with us and we want to serve them in their families, but without the proper number of staff, we're just unable to do that. And Karen, how does the nonprofit or state-funded status affect how you're able to address these challenges? And why is that an important part of the conversation? So the Women's League is a nonprofit uh, organization, and we are also uh, very heavily, primarily a state-funded program. Um, I see that as being uh, a definite positive uh, in terms of working with the OEC around um, resources for teachers in terms of professional development and training, um, the support that we receive during the pandemic, uh, the stabilization funds uh, that were based upon that looked at equity factors such as the social vulnerability. Um, those things have worked uh, so much in combination to help us stay afloat. Uh, and so I know that my issues that I face as a nonprofit state funded program are different than what other programs face. And Alex, I want to bring you into conversation. Meanwhile, in New Haven, you've said shortages have created a childcare desert. And we'll get to some of the solutions that you come up with in terms of finding new spaces and even housing. But first, can you sort of walk us through where things stand for you right now? Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, at the moment today, if we think about sort of what my role is, um, just to give you an idea of sort of the staffing situations that we're facing, like I'm trying to find emergency housing for one teacher, affordable car for another, food subsidy for a third, and rent money for a fourth. That's in addition to navigating everything that Karen and Dr. Ferguson mentioned about our wait lists and parent needs and child needs. You know, our staff, there are, are, the, the foundation which they build their lives on is really so unstable because of the compensation and wages that um, they are have been receiving uh, in Connecticut. It's like thirty four thousand five hundred per year is the average salary for an early care and education teacher, and that's including people with BAs who have years and years of experience. We've been doing this for so long that we have this workforce that is completely unstable in that way, fiscally. And so the things that come out of that are um, desperation. And we have to, you know, I, I love that the Blue Ribbon Panel has put this as a top priority because compensation is the key. If we do not change this analogy um, and, and compensate people in a professional and livable way, we are going to continue to have these huge shortfalls in our system. And we were also just talking about wait lists for different organizations in different cities, both pre-pandemic and sort of at this moment. Where do wait lists stand for you, Alex? Yeah, we have hundreds of people on our wait list. And I echo the infant toddler um, side of the world. We can fill an infant toddler spot within, you know, two hours. It is, um, there is such desperation. And it's so, it's so um, pervasive that, uh, that I can have families call me to tell me that they're pregnant before their extended family knows or even their immediate family. So imagine 
that you have to tell a total stranger that you're pregnant before your mom and dad. That's the situation we've created. And then imagine, you know, I have conversations with families who, who end up telling me they're pregnant before it's really viable and they will lose the baby and have to ha have that conversation with me as a total stranger about this really intimate moment in their life because we've created a system that is not designed um, for the user, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just a really pretty remarkable thing to think about um, in the system that we've designed. Right, and I mean, the fact that you said that just now here, I wonder if that's something that you've experienced before. You know, what are your thoughts about how this crisis is hitting parents? Is that something that you've experienced before or is that a fairly new kind of thing? Um, so the, the, the crisis for early care and education and, and the, the need is, oh, has been there since I've been operating in Connecticut or, you know, I've, I'm a fourth generation Connecticut person. So right. I have seen this throughout my career and throughout our family when we talk about it. But sure. So it's not new that the, the pandemic has exacerbated all these things, right? So we were in crisis before the pandemic. We had received these stabilization funds, which is sort of how we started this conversation, which allowed us to, to maintain the crisis, basically, right? It didn't fix anything. It didn't fix the system. It just sort of maintained where we were. And now other industries in our society have sort of evolved. I liked how Dr. Ferguson said, post-pandemic, um, you know, we're still in it. It's not really post. It's sort of a new uh, phase of the pandemic. And we've been unable to adjust. We can't Zoom with babies. We can't do part-time care um, or work from home in the way that other industries can. And most importantly, we cannot pay our teachers what they can now make somewhere else because we can't charge more for our services. And that is really where the points that Jessica uh, Sager brought up in terms of compensation, we have to raise wages and it has to come from the government um, in, in some form. So we're going to hear another clip here from another voice that really touches on what you're saying, Alex. You know, we talked about the literal kind of undervaluing around funding and wages being underscored here, but there's also perpetual undervaluing that you are all confronting. So we're going to hear from Eva Bernudez Zimmerman with Child Care for Connecticut's Future. Right now, with the cliff approaching us, the childcare providers who take so much time creating curriculum, and I, yes, you heard it right, curriculum, childcare is not just putting a child in front of a TV and forgetting about that child. Childcare is educational. Childcare is making sure that they learn in a structured environment through play. It takes a lot of work and making sure that those educators have the resources. So I want to end here with all three of your responses. Dr. Ferguson, you going first. You know, What are your thoughts uh, having heard what Eva has to say? Yeah, I mean, this is an industry that has been um, <laughs> neglected on so many levels for, for decades. Um, we know that child care, even though those words seem very simple, it's a very complicated, complex process uh, as as Beth Bai said earlier, we're talking about the development of children's brains. We're talking about uh, resourcing families with life-changing uh, resources, meaning childcare, that they can elevate out of poverty and, and maintain uh, a lifestyle that is their best life. So when we think about um, 
a complex situation and a complex process like childcare, um, I think sometimes folks get it a little twisted. Um, and 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 there is that that stereotypical scenario of a child in front of a TV. We have long, <laughs> long surpassed that that visual. Um, when I think about the dollars that Alliance uh, <laughs> invests in professional development and critical thinking tools and opportunities for our staff so we can develop those brains in a smart way. I said they are ready for kindergarten and, and better yet, ready for the world. Um, it's important to think about the level of investment we need to make in this process. And Karen, what are your thoughts with what Eva and Dr. Ferguson has to say? With my staff here uh, at the Women's League, I tell them all the time, we are brain builders. And what we are doing for children that come to us at three months of age and stay with us until they're ready to go off to kindergarten is at the most critical point in time in their lives. Uh, and that we have the opportunity and we have the awesome responsibility to put children on a trajectory for success, academic success and social emotional success. Um, so the, the importance of early care and education um, really needs to have a shift in our country where people really understand what we do, that we are educating children and the staff are early childcare educators. Um, and in that we play a critical role in our communities, we play a, community, a vital role in the state of Connecticut. Um, and I really want people to understand that the work that the staff do is worthy of their full compensation. And Alex, talking about critical roles in education, you know, your thoughts about this undervaluing and the sort of misconception around the level of skill in early childhood educators. You know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'll say ditto to Karen and Dr. Ferguson. And um, we're steeped in our country in this historical belief system of uh, regarding early care and education and child care. And it's that women should do it. That's sort of women should stay home and be and take care of children. That's sort of a historical belief system that we have that we haven't gotten over. And we didn't until recently truly understand brain development and the critical importance of the zero to five range. And so now we know those things. So my belief is that we now that we know we need to do better. And we have not yet shifted our value system to align with what is scientific, what is proven, um, you know, from a human development side. We also now know the economic development side. And we, the fact that we continue to make choices that are, do not, um, we're not leading with what we know is really, again, based on these rooted belief systems. So we're an industry that's 98% female. We're disproportionately women of color. So we have to ask ourselves, why are we, why are we still um, making choices that are um, devaluing and undermining and paying women to live in poverty? It's based on our sexism and our racism and the way that we see um, these educators. So I think it's a combination of all those things. Um, and we really have to make a, a values and culture shift to get where we need to be. 
You've been listening to Dr. Monette Ferguson, Karen Lott, and Alex Schiavone, who are our educators and experts with the Blue Ribbon Panel on Child Care, as well as the Child Care for Connecticut's Future Coalition. They'll be staying with us, and we'll be continuing this conversation after a quick break. Let us know if you have any questions or concerns about early education and child care. Call us at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with us to continue this conversation around child care in Connecticut is Dr. Monette Ferguson, who's the executive director of the Alliance for Community Empowerment in Bridgeport. We also have Karen Lott, who's the executive director at the Women's League Child Development Center in Hartford, as well as Alex Schiavone, who is the executive director of the Friends Center for Children in New Haven. So Karen and Dr. Ferguson, you're both on the Blue Ribbon Panel for Child Care. Uh, Dr. Ferguson, what has it been like to sort of start putting this five-year plan together? Uh, as you can imagine, um, an immense challenge. Um, it is, it's an honor and a blessing to be, to be around the table with, with caring experts around this issue. But the issue um, is big and it's it's lingering. It's been around for a long time. And we know um, with issues of this magnitude, it takes time and it also also takes systematic change because it's a systematic breakdown. So um, Blue Ribbon, um, you know, sanctioned by the governor and led by Commissioner Bai and some other fantastic partners across the state has been um, a great start to 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 really tackling a big problem. And Commissioner Beth Bai shared with us earlier that some of her top priorities include compensation and staffing. So Dr. Ferguson, you know, what are some of your top priorities in this drafted plan? Yeah, those are my top priorities. <laughs> um, thank you for asking. Uh, if I don't have a well-compensated workforce, I don't have a workforce. And if I don't have a workforce, I can't do the great work of you know, educating and and helping to um, raise the children of Connecticut as my peers do. You know, um, parents need to work. Parents need to know that their children are safe and loved and nurtured. And without a, co- a well-compensated workforce, um, we're creating choices that, that we don't really necessarily have to create in this space. So, um, yeah, the blue ribbon priorities, thankfully enough, are also my priorities. And Karen, what has your experience been like and what are your hopes for the drafted plan? So I think one of the uh, incredible things about the blue ribbon panel and having the opportunity to serve on the panel is that it has brought a cross sector of people together from not only just from early care and education, but from the business sector, 
it's brought the public schools uh, uh, representatives to the table to be a part of this panel. And so for me, it feels like a very comprehensive, collaborative piece that are bringing a lot of people to the table who perhaps in the past did not have an invested interest or a direct correlation to what was happening in early care and education. So it's awesome to see these minds come together and realize the importance of early care and education and how it touches all components of our communities. Um, and yet to bring that brain power to the table to say, these are some solutions that we think we could work to put in place in support of uh, a renewed, for lack of a better word, a renewed childcare system um, in the state of Connecticut. And as far as the priorities, I think they're spot on. I agree with Dr. Ferguson, work for workplace and workplace uh, compensation of teachers is critical. Um, and we need to do that in a way that not only provides additional funding for teachers in terms of pay, but also increases opportunities for them to, to improve their uh, improve their toolkit, to improve their skills as teachers. So I am uh, very honored to be on the, the panel, and I think the work is going in the right direction, particularly as we have been learning about what other states are doing to tackle the very same complicated issues around early care and education. And Alex, we've been talking a lot about priorities. We'd love for you to share about some of the innovations that you've made in New Haven. You're in the process of taking over a movie theater. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, we are so excited. So as we talked about before, New Haven is a child care desert, um, uh, especially uh, related to early care and uh, to infant toddlers. So we are in the, we are an expanding and a growth organization. We have been growing since we opened, which is about 15 years ago, and are constantly adding um, sites and um, spaces to our to our community. And we do that because the communities ask for it and because there's a need. So we just purchased um, uh, Cine One Through Four for people who are familiar with the New Haven area. It's a former movie theater that was hit by the pandemic. Um, and it is two acres of land, which is very hard to find in a city, as you can imagine. And when you think about childcare space and infrastructure for childcare space, uh, we need outdoor space. So cities become difficult places to find outdoor green space. So this was an opportunity to provide, um, you know, 80 infant toddler slots and outdoor space um, for children and families in the New Haven area. So we're really excited about that that expansion opportunity. Um, we, uh, as a program, we are a sliding scale program. Like Karen mentioned in her program, we most of our spots are state subsidized spots. We also enjoy our partnership with the state and believe it is a really critical public good um, that uh, needs to be reinforced across the entire state and in all early care and education settings. So we're excited to, to be partners with OEC um, in this expansion. And with what you're doing, too, with that space, you've also found ways to offer housing to some teachers through a partnership with the Yale School of Architecture. Here's an obvious question, but why was this so important to do? Yeah, so when, when we've been talking about compensation, um, uh, we we were struggling with the same question that really the entire nation and the Blue Room panel is is struggling with, which is how do you compensate teachers more without raising 
uh, parent tuition because they're already paying more than they can afford. And in the absence of significant federal and or state investments. And so that's the essential question that we were thinking about. And we could not figure out how to do it. Uh, we could not raise teacher salaries. We just didn't have it in our budget. So we attempted to tackle the issue from a different perspective, which is how do we then lower their costs? How do we remove expenses for them if we can't give them more uh, cash, which should be the, the first the thing we'd like to do. And uh, so we surveyed our teachers and we said, what are your four biggest expenses? And at the time, which was in 2020, we had 29 educators and only one of them owned their own home, which is a statement in and of itself of the way that we have neglected to invest in our workforce so that they can then have a sustainable, um, you know, uh, life path where they can purchase their own home and have the transfer of wealth and their family through the transfer of property. I mean, it really was a remarkable um, finding. And so we decided to create a uh, system where we could provide free housing with the intent that the educator would then have a savings so that they can save funds and eventually buy their own home. So it is a path to home ownership. Um, we currently have six educators who uh, are living rent-free. Uh, there's seven adults and uh, seven children now who are housed in our housing. And what it does is it takes a teacher's salary um, and then automatically increases it by whatever the rental amount. And market rents in New Haven are exceptionally high. We're having a housing crisis across the state as well. So it tackles two issues at the same time. Um, and we're really excited um, about that. And the partnership with Yale that you mentioned is allowing us to expand uh, our plans because the Yale School of Architecture are building, uh, designing and then building homes with the teachers. So it's just an amazing initiative that we're really excited about. And most importantly, it gives teachers a higher salary. And so I think with what Alex just shared, it's certainly not a new problem. And I think it would resonate with a lot of people. Dr. Ferguson, we know you've dealt with similar issues when it comes to paying staff. Do you have any solutions that you can share with us that you've made to keep people on or are planning to? Yeah, I, I have to say the stabilization funds that we've received from OEC um, since the onset of the pandemic have allowed us to uh, give bonuses and maintain some of the some of the folks that we we started with. Not all, but some. Um, in addition to that, you know, we continue. We are also federally funded, so the feds have soft fit, fit in the last fiscal to give us a cost of living raise, which was at about five point six percent. So. Uh, so we were able to to give that right over to pass that right through and give that right over to staff. I know it's not a lot, but it was a little something that we could offer. OEC also um, saw fit to establish a cost of living increase. So incrementally, little by little, we've been able to increase salaries uh, nowhere near the federal investment that we'd like to see made uh, to really, really help evolve our staff out of poverty. Um, it's it's. You know, as I'm sure my peers understand, it is insane that my staff members qualify for the same programs um, that they work hard to to evolve their families out of. Um, so so we want to reverse that trend, which is so to me just <laughs> despicable. Um, in addition to that, 
having higher quality professional development opportunities. Um, also the wraparound progr- programs, a lot of the wraparound programs that we, we have for our families, we also we also offer for our staff, you know, the, the food security and, you know, you know um, all, all types of transportation incentives and things of that nature that we've tried to uplift and infuse into our staff to make it a little more attractive to stay with us as we work the situation out. So we have a little under two minutes here, but I would love a quick final thought from each of you, starting with you, Dr. Ferguson. Anything you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, yeah, um, I, I'd like to say thank you for having me. Um, also, um, extremely optimistic about the future. Um, I have to say I, I've been in this industry for 20 years. I was a Head Start kid. And I have to say that without programs like the ones that we lead across the state, you know, the future is is pretty dim. So working hard to reverse these trends and to uplift this industry is is an honor and a privilege. And and I'm happy to be here to talk about it with my peers. Thank you. Alex, about 30 seconds. What do you have to say? Just what an amazing opportunity we have before us. Uh, Connecticut can make an investment in the child care system that can single-handedly increase family income, increase the state economy, reduce child poverty, reduce the achievement gap, reduce social service spending, solve the labor shortage. And if we're really thoughtful about the way we do it, um, such as using physical infrastructure, creating workforce housing, we can impact the housing crisis as well. Um, Agree with uh, Dr. Ferguson. Happy to be here. And thank you for the time. And Karen, likewise, 30 seconds, what would you like to share? I would like to share that I'm extremely hopeful about what the future holds for early care and education in the state of Connecticut. I think we have some great models that are happening around the state to look at and build from, but it will take the collective voice of everyone leaning in and understanding the importance of early care and education and talking with legislators and talking with the decision makers so that we can really make sure that we have the greatest early care and education system in Connecticut that puts our children and our families on a trajectory for success. And you've been listening to Karen Lott, who's the executive director at the Women's League Child Development Center in Hartford, Dr. Monette Ferguson, who's the executive director of the Alliance for Community Empowerment in Bridgeport, and Alex Chavoni, who is the executive director of the Friends Center for Children in New Haven. Thank you all for joining us this morning. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.